Oak Road. Um, Nadim, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, Sogdian, and you yeah. were about to talk about the Sogdian religion. I was, um, because it's very interesting. And it was probably, well, first of all, synchronistic. There were a lot of other faiths in the area, and they all sort of interacted in, in a little bit. So you have Hindu iconography. Um, the Sogdian deities are all depicted in Indian clothing uh, with these thrones that have animal signs, which are, again, an Indian thing. Um, they're Iranian deities, um, sure, but you know they have Sogdian names and they're dressed in funny Indian fashions a lot of the time. Uh, you have Buddhism, which is a big thing in eastern Sogdiana and Bactria. And um, in the sort of northeastern parts of Sogdiana, you have Nestorian Christianity. And all these things kind of start playing around, uh, intermixing and intermarrying. Um, there's certainly Nestorian and Buddhist communities in proper Sogdiana, Samarkand, Panjakant, Bukhara maybe as well, um, and Khwarazm. Um, but the predominant religion would have been a form of Zoroastrianism. Now, I say a form of Zoroastrianism because when we think of Zoroastrianism, we think of the dualistic religion that sort of exists today and probably existed in the Kemenid times. But the religion that the Sogdians followed was very different to that. Um, for starters, it wasn't dualistic. It wasn't monotheistic. It was polytheistic. There was a, quite a large pantheon of gods in Sogdiana. Um, some of the most important ones were a, a deity called Odver, which is the Sogdian Ahura Mazda. He's a cognate, or he's depicted like the Indian uh, Indra. So he has a throne with elephants on it, and the elephant is heavily associated with Odver. Um there's a god called uh, Veshparkar. Um, he's the wind deity. Um, he's depicted like Shiva. He comes from Kushan Wish um, and has a lot of Shivite symbols. For example, a trident. He has three heads. Um, he's often depicted in armor and he has a chariot of boars. I'm not sure why he has boars and not bulls. Somehow that got changed. Um, there are other deities as well. There's a lady called Nana, who is the most important deity in the city of Panjakant, um, which is the most well excavated um, Sogdian city. Uh, she's everywhere and she has often has four arms and is often seated on a lion. Um, again, she has Mesopotamian and Iranian origins too. Those are kind of the three main big ones. There are a few other deities as well, uh, a few other minor deities, but those were the, the main players, so to speak. And they hark back to Avestan, um, Avestan characters um, from Avestan mythology. And uh, and my Manichaeism too, right? And and in fact, um... Manichaeism, yes. <laughs> so Manichaeism probably didn't take off that much in Sogdiana itself, but it certainly did further east in the Sogdian and Uyghur communities in Xinjiang in the Tarim Basin. Yeah, and because... this is probably Iran's biggest. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Because, I was about to say, it's probably Iran's biggest religious export. There, there you go. Uh, what were you about to say? Yeah, because, uh, in fact, the, it's, uh, the, um, the Sogdians, they, they uh, brought Manichaeism to the Chinese capital, the, the Tang uh, Chinese capital of Luoyang and Chang'an. They, they built Manichaeism uh, temples there. So, so during the Anlusan Rebellion, which we, I hope we will cover a little bit later, um, the the oh, yeah. Tang uh, imperial government, uh, you know, they, they had a lot of problems uh, handling the rebellion. So they invited the Uyghur Khanate uh, to come and help suppress uh, Anlusan rebellion. And a surprise to pay, you know, for, for their, as a reward for their um, participation, 
they Uyghurs were allowed to sack the city of the capital of Luoyang because at the time An Lusan uh, had controlled both Tang capital of Chang'an and Luoyang, right? And and in order hmm. to take those capitals back, um, the, the Tang imperial court invited the Uyghur uh, army to come in from Mongolia and as payment <laughs> they led the Uyghurs <laughs> back sack Luoyang. So during that process, right, while the, while the Uyghurs were sacking Luoyang, they they come into contact with the Sogdian uh, merchants uh, and the Sogdian uh, Manichaeism temple and they got you know they they they, they got some uh, uh, Sogdian uh, Manichaeism priests. So and, and and somehow they were impressed enough that they converted and Manichaeism yeah. <laughs> became a state religion of the Uyghur Khanate in Mongolia. Uh, and, and, and then when Uyghur eventually got pushed out of Mongolia, they, they brought it with them back to uh, back, uh, you know, when they when the Uyghur conquered Taran Basin, uh, they brought Manichaeism, you know, kind of back to, to Taran Basin. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, it's kind of cool, and and there's so much cool Uyghur Manichaean art and Manichaean uh, um, manuscripts and things. They're written in the, they're often written in the Sogdian language, but it's written with the Manichaean script, and they're Manichaean parables um, or stories or, or, or gospels and things like that. Uh, Manichaeanism is a very interesting religion. So it's um, it was founded in the third century um, AD in Iran by a guy called Mani. Um, and it was a odd fusion of Christianity with Buddhist and Zoroastrian traditions. And it was initially favored by Shahpur I in the third century, but then the Zoroastrian clergy didn't like it. And Iran is, at this point, is, is very much a theocracy. So if the Zoroastrian clergy don't like something, it's kind of non grata, essentially. So Mani becomes imprisoned, uh, but his followers flee, and they flee to Egypt, and they also flee to Central Asia, and it just you know, flourishes in Central Asia, essentially. Um, There's some familiar characters. So Adam and Eve, Jesus, they all exist. But um, Adam and Eve are children of a male and female demon created by a character called the Prince of Darkness. And uh, Jesus makes Adam eat the tree of life and makes him realize that his soul is divine, while his body is part of the uh, wicked material world. Um, Eve, on the other hand, is seduced by a demon and gives birth to Cain and Abel, which perpetuates man's existence and imprisonment of you know the good divine soul within his evil wicked body wow um so yeah it it's 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 a little different to what we're used to um it doesn't i don't think it exists nowadays really it it kind of it became a bit too synchronistic syncretistic for its own good and it just became absorbed into other religions completely yeah um, i mean man yeah. actually the manichaeism influence uh, survived for a long time in china because um you know like um during the you know after at the end of the Mongol rule in China during the collapse of Yuan Dynasty, um, the the Red Turban rebels, um, their ideology was a mixture of kind of Buddhism and Manichaeism. Um, um, in fact, the 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 the, the succeeding dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, right? Uh, the Ming literally means brightness in Chinese. Mm. Uh, I mean, hmm. there's your there's your Manichaeism <laughs> and Zoroastrian influence right there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so it, 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 there's some vestigial uh, element that survives. Um, that but, that yeah. survives and gets absorbed into other things. Yeah, exactly. like it does. It's a bit too syncretistic for its own good. Um, yeah. But 
you know, yeah. Um, it might have survived up until the 16th century in some weird uh, mutated form from its original 3rd century incarnation. Um, yeah, Iran's biggest religious export. It's not Zoroastrianism, it's Manichaeism. <laughs> Okay, so what 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 do you want to go? Where do you want to go next? Um, where do you want to go next? <laughs> let's let's talk about some. Let's talk about the, sure. the, the, the Let's the, talk about Sogdians in China. Yes, because they there's such a there's so, Sogdians. Uh, at, at, I mean, China plays such a big role in the Sogdian uh, affairs, and the, and and vice versa. There's the Sogdian plays such a big important role in in Tang China. So let's talk about it. Go. Oh yeah, definitely. And there was an important commercial role and an important important um diplomatic role. Um so commercially China was the main export market for the Sogdians and they exported a lot of stuff very early on. So as early as the 4th century AD uh during the time of the ancient letters, the Sogdian ancient letters, um we have evidence of a expansive Sogdian trade network across the Tarim Basin and into China. And this probably started flourishing with the sort of nomadic Kidarite and Haftalite invasions. Um, there were a lot of other merchants. There were Bactrian merchants, Kushan merchants, Parthian and Persian merchants. But Bactria fell into decline with the Hunnic invasions. And, um, you know, the, the Persians also got a, a bit of that action too. So the Sogdians started to outcompete them quite drastically and became the main movers and shakers on the so-called Silk Road. Um, now, um, commercially, they exported a lot of stuff. Um, and some of their exports include foodstuffs like peaches, grapes, um, grape wine, um, nuts, pomegranates, melons, and things. Um, spices such as cumins, peppers, um, aromatics like sandalwood. In fact, there's a piece of sandalwood with a Sogdian inscription in the Shosuin repository in Japan. Um, probably got there overland from Sogdiana into the Tang Chinese and then traded um, across the across the sea to Japan, which is kind of a cool way to go. Um, you also have things like textiles, furs, silk textiles, carpets, um, leathers, dyes. Um, horses were a big deal, of course, because the Chinese initially expanded west looking for these so-called heavenly horses back during the Han Dynasty times, which they encountered in Fergana, which is just north of Sogdiana. And of course, there was a lot of travel of, um, of silverware. Um, the Tang Chinese loved Sogdian silver, and they actually copied a lot of Sogdian silver in their own silverware. Um, a good example is the Heijatun hoard. I probably mispronounced that really badly, but it's Tang Dynasty. It's clearly made by the Chinese, but it looks so Sogdian, yet so not Sogdian, made in the Sogdian fashion by a Chinese artist. You know the one I'm referring to, right? Yes, I saw the picture you posted on Twitter. It it's, it's, looks amazing, the, the, the details. And I mean, like, like if you didn't say it was manufactured in Tang China, I would have thought it was Central Asian, you know, like... It, it, cause you'd, it have looked... guessed, you'd have guessed Central Asian. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, getting on to um, getting onto another topic. Um, diplomatically, China and Sogdiana were, like, really well linked. So after the collapse of the Turks, and these nomadic powers collapsed really easily because they didn't have stable governments, but the Turks collapsed, and the Sogdians like, hey, um, we have a very hostile state to our south, China, help, please. We'll be our vassals. Um, so that happened, and there's uh, we have really good evidence for this in a um, in a wall painting from the middle of the sixth century from Samarkand. Um, 
and there's a painting of a king called uh, King Varchuman um, who ruled in the middle of the uh, middle of the seventh century, and um, we know that he was invested by the Tang Emperor at that point, and the the Chinese have their own wall dedicated to, to to their scene where the empress of china is hunting and and, and there's um chinese boatmen chinese um, hunters on horses um the chinese did invest a lot of sogdian kings um in samarkand i believe that um, was the Tang princess so so oh the princess okay so the, at least the version i read i mean there's a different interpretation of those paintings uh but the, the version i read there was um so around that time, there was supposed to be a, a Tang princess that were to marry the uh, uh, Kagans of the Western Turks. Um, um, like, but the, the the marriage actually didn't take place because other things happened. But at the but at the time of the painting, you know, like that was done. That was because <laughs> it was all right, it was, all right, yeah, yeah. It was treated as a done deal. So so they painted the. The, the, the Chinese princess on the boat, you know, maybe on her way to 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 marry the Western Turks Kagan or or, or whatever. Um, and and there was a a, a giant wall of uh, uh, hunters, uh, basically wearing like the Tang cord uh, 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 riding dress, and and there's a hmm. giant figure in the middle, and the 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 archaeologists believe that that figure is supposed to be that of Tang Taizong, the the, the the Tang Emperor at the time. Oh yeah, there are more interpretations of Afrosiob or Samarkand than there are authors who've written about it. So um, <laughs> yeah, you have to find one and stick with it, I guess. Um, yeah. It, it's a really cool set of paintings, actually. Um, it's in the middle middle of the seventh century, like I said, and it's it's Samarkand. It's one of the only paintings we have of Samarkand. Even though it was the biggest Sogdian city, not much has survived because it, um, you know, it continued to be used essentially. Whereas Panjikant kind of fell out of fashion, and a lot of stuff was preserved because the fires collapsed the buildings and they kind of were vacuum sealed for all of time. Um, Samarkand was a, a little bit different. Oh, um, right, because it's one of the few because uh, because Samarkand was basically a continuously inhabited city, right? Inhabited, so. so for millennia. Right. Yeah. Whereas Panjikan, it was sacked during the Arab invasion and, and when, when the city was burned, uh, uh, basically kind of oddly preserve like the the, the city kind of kind of freezing time like Pompeii, right? Um Yeah, it it became a time capsule, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry for um, my interruption. Anyway, so that's fine. So this the Samarkand paintings um, are really interesting because it shows you how the Sogdians saw themselves in the world. There's another thing I thought about, like the you know, like why Sogdians are like kind of the natural have a natural symbiotic relationship with the the step uh, people is that um, the step people they get a lot of uh, luxury goods from China either through through raiding or through tributes. Right. Because um, at one point, um, you know, like the, uh, the, the, the uh, after, especially after the Anlusan Rebellion, basically the, the power balance kind of shifted toward the, the steppe empires again. The, the, you know, so, so the Tang Empire were paying. Um, so they're carrying this tray with the Uyghur Empire for horses. But silk, it's like a silk for horses. But um, it was set in such a way that, uh, you know, uh, 
that they, the Tang was basically obligated to buy a huge number of horses, uh, regardless of the quality, with a huge, enormous amount of silk. Like the Uyghur uh, Empire was receiving about 500, I think, I think I, if I remember correctly, 500,000 boats of silk per year from Tang Empire. And, and you know, of course, these, they have to do like the, you know, the steppe people there, they are very good at what they do, which is like they have like, uh, you know, oftentimes have superior military power. They ride horses and shoot things. Yeah. Right, right, right. But they need like a, like a more business savvy people like Sogdians to help them um, market and uh, uh, and trade their loots, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the silks that we're getting from China, you know, they they need to be they need they, they want to be able to trade for other luxury items further afield, and that's where the Sogdians come in because they're, they're they're merchants, and and there was actually a Chinese uh, in a Chinese um um the, the sources they they there was they describe a scene where supposedly the when the uh, Sogdian baby is born, uh, they place a metal coin in its hand. And honey in its mouth. Oh, yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it, it's to speak sweet words and always earning money. I think some Tajiks still do it nowadays. Actually, it's 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 a tradition that survived. Um, honey in the mouth and a coin in the hand for a newborn baby. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, oh, can we talk about that story of how the about the the, the Chinese princess who smuggles silk out of her hair? We absolutely can, um, but it's actually yes. not Sogdian at all. It actually comes from Khotan, which wasn't a Sogdian city-state, um, and it comes from a period before the Sogdians were major players. It comes from the 4th century. I mean, the Sogdians were major players, but not the major players. They were alongside Bactrians and Persians and things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is a really fun story, and I, I tell it to people when I do living history displays because it's it's just a fun story. And it's the story of how silk left China. So once upon a time, um, there was a king of the Khotanese people, and the Khotan is in the Tarim Basin. Um, it was ruled by an Iranian nomadic um, people who became sedentary, and uh, he wanted to learn the secret of silk production. So at this time, silk was heavily guarded by uh, by 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 China, they didn't let anybody out who had who knew how to make silk because they had a monopoly on it, and everyone really wanted silk. Um, so if you had a monopoly, you can charge high prices and you can use it for tribute and paying off the nomads and everything. But once everybody makes it, it becomes less valuable, right? So this certain king, this one king, um, he devises a plot to learn the secret of silk weaving. He sends a marriage proposal to the Chinese emperor. Um, and they're friends, so the Chinese emperor is like, yeah, sure, um, I will send you a princess. Now, what this king of Khotan does is um, he writes to the Chinese princess and he goes, hey, um, you know all those fancy clothes you like wearing, all those lovely soft silks with the fancy embroidery and brocade weaving and things like that? Um, yeah, so we actually can't make those here. We don't know how to make them. Um, all we have, I'm afraid, are um, camel furs 
and wool and cotton. It's kind of itchy. I'm sure it's not what you're used to. I'm sure you'll be fine. It takes getting used to. I mean, if you wanted to bring some silk with you, you could do that, but you don't have to, you know. And the Chinese prince is like, hey, that's a really good idea. I think I'll bring some silk along with me. Um, so what she does is she um, smuggles into her headdress some mulberry leaves, some silk cocoons, and some um, silkworms into, into her big she wore this big um, coiffure, um, held it with pins and gold and pearls and whatever else she put in her hair. And uh, these um, methods of making silk were hidden in there. And she selected her ladies-in-waiting um, to be people who knew how to weave and weave silk and farm silkworms and everything. And uh, so she's traveling. She's leaving the Chinese borders. And she gets to the, the borders. Um, and the Chinese guards are like, hey, stop. We have to search you. And she's like, no, you don't. I'm the princess. You're not going to search me. And they're like, yeah, good point. You can pass. Um, and she gets to Khotan. And as she gets to Khotan, she unveils her headdress. And in her headdress are the silkworms and the silk cocoons and the mulberry leaves and some mulberry seeds. And that is the story of how silk weaving and silk production left China and entered the rest of the world. It might not be the real story, but it's certainly a good story to tell. Oh, it's a great story. And there, uh, and um this the the similar version of the story was recorded by uh the Tang Dynasty monk uh, Buddhist monk Xuanzang who was f- most famous for making his trip all the way to India to get the uh, true Sanskrit scriptures and he 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 recorded a slightly different version of the story so in his story was um the Chinese princess was supposed to marry uh, the king of Persia, um, and and uh, maybe it's a different princess. I don't know. But, but so while the, <laughs> I mean, it's mythology, so it can be whichever princess. We want. A different princess, but I'm 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 just going off my memory here. So, uh, but by the time, uh, so you know, the Chinese princess brought her, but also you know, try to smuggle the the the, the silkworm and mulberry leaf everything. Uh, but as they, uh, you know, before they were able to make over uh, the Pamir Mountains, right? Uh, basically leaving, you know, confines of China, the Chinese Empire at the time. Um, it was found out that she she was pregnant. <laughs> and, oh dear! What an inconvenience! Right. So all the all her uh, uh, companions and and envoys are like, "Oh crap! You know, <laughs> we can't we can't keep <laughs> go on. We can't go back." So they they settled uh, they settled locally. Um, you know, they, they founded their own kingdom, and, and you know they, they, that's that's uh, so that's a that's a that's a ver- another version of the same story. Oh well, but, yeah, that's. The- that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, the story was certainly known to the Khotanis in the 8th century. Um, the excavations at Dandan Oile, which is near Khotan, um, have excavated a couple of storyboards. Um, and on one of them is painted the story of the uh, princess with the silkworm headdress. Um, now, these storyboards are really cool because the way they hark back into illuminated scrolls and even Sogdian paintings. And it's about how you tell the stories. So it would be these stories would be told by you know professional storytellers or minstrels or something there'd be a group of them maybe with music but the storyteller himself he would hold up these boards and they'd have the illustrations on and uh, recite the story at the same time and of course sometimes there'd be multiple boards you could um you know 
change the scene, for example. Um, and you, you know, this tradition was still practiced in rural parts of Iran and Afghanistan and, and Tajikistan in the 20th century. The Sogdian paintings are essentially this, but on a huge scale. So we know that the Sogdian paintings at Panjikant, in particular the Rostam story, um, was a copy of a scroll. And we know this because it doesn't end neatly at the corners of the house. It kind of just, you know, goes over the corners, um, which means it wasn't really meant to fit the wall. It was meant to fit something a bit wider and longer than the wall. Um, and it, what would probably happen is, is these big wall paintings were in the audience chambers or the living rooms and you'd be entertaining guests and uh you know the the Sogdian host or the guest would say hey let me tell you the story of this guy whom I've got painted right here you know while they were drinking and dancing as the Sogdians were um, very keen on doing and they'd recite the stories um that were painted on their walls to their guests or their hosts or whoever they were entertaining at the time um that's one thought of of the purpose of these Sogdian paintings. It harks all the way back to these storyboards in Khotan and the Parthian um, minstrel tradition of travelers singing songs, telling stories, um, often Shahnameh stories or Sistani epic stories. Um, yeah. Wow. Really cool I, that's, that's there. like literally moving picture. I mean, I, I <laughs> like the early form of movies. Um, it is. You're not wrong. I mean, the the paintings that in like the the Khotanese ones, it's multiple scenes per board, or sometimes you have multiple boards for different scenes. And the Sogian paintings is you have different scenes, so you read these paintings, you know, left to right to right to left, and the the narrator would travel across the room telling the story. Like like behind me, uh, Rostam is wrestling um, Olad, and then he'd move to the next scene, and then now he's uh, fighting against the the witch in the mountain, and he moves to the next scene, and now they're fighting demons. You know, I mean, they'd probably dress it up a bit more than I have, but it would be like that. It'd be a very dynamic thing, probably with music and, and wine and dancing as well. The Sogdians liked their wine and dancing, according to the Chinese. Oh, they, they, they actually yeah. were famous for that in China. I mean, they, they um, you know, wine was a big import from Sogdiana uh, to, to China. Uh, and, the, you know, because grape, I mean, like the grapes, they weren't indigenous to China. It was it was uh, carried along the Silk Road. And then and definitely um, grape wine was introduced to China um, through through the Silk Road. And 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 so the two things that I think most associated with Sogdians in China around Tang, Tang Dynasty is uh, grape wine and the Sogdian t- world, the dancing, the dancing girls of Sogdiana. They, they do a kind of a, like a twirling kind of dance. Yeah, they do. Well, I mean, there, there's two types of dance that the that the Chinese um, recorded the the Sogdians doing. Uh, one of them is called the whirling dance, and one of them is called the, the kicking dance. Um, you, could, I mean, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but um, yeah, um, yeah. So there, there's two different types of dances, and there's two types of dances recorded in Sino-Sogdian or, or Chinese art. The kicking dance is the more common of the two because it's usually men doing this and um, you know they have uh, they have daggers in their hands and and drums and they're they're kicking and fighting. It's kind of like it's almost martial, you could say. And then there's the 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 spinning dance, which is um, which is usually done by women, and it's you know graceful, heavy use of you know whirling spins. You have similar sort of things in contemporary Pamiri dances as well. Um, there's a really cool um, quote from um, you know the 
um, a, a Chinese um, writer called Bai Juyi, um, who lived in the late eighth and early ninth century. And uh, you know what he writes is he says, with a small drum in one hand, the Huxian girl, which is the um, the Sogdian girl dancer, uh, the Huxian girl danced gracefully, swirling right and left like falling snowflakes, while lifting her hand to beat the drum rhythmically. Um, that's what the Chinese thought of that. So um, he was rather, this writer was rather um, shocked to learn that Chinese women of rank also learned to do this, you know, foreign kind of scandalous, um, you know, Western dance with wild spinning and dances and, and all that kind of stuff. The Chinese weren't meant to do that. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, will be a good point to introduce uh, uh, probably the most famous Sogdians in China, uh, An Lusan <laughs> of the, <laughs> of the An Lusan rebellion fame, uh, because he, before he became a big rebel, um, you know, he was, he was a, a half Sogdian, half Turk, um, serving in the Tang military, and he climbed. Um, you know, he was able to quickly climb through the ladder in the bureaucracy by, uh, you know, partly through his uh, clan connection and partly through his uh, his ability to uh, kiss ass, um, because he. Uh, you know, he, he became very uh, tight with a uh, favorite uh, imperial concubine, Yang Guifei, um, hmm. uh, concubine Yang, um, who was most favored by the Tang Emperor at the time. And so he actually taught her how to do the Sogdian spinning <laughs> yeah. dance. So, I mean, but, 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 but except, except, uh, Anlu San is this guy known to be very obese. You know, I'm trying to like picture this, like, 250 pound, you know, 300 pound guy <laughs> trying to like spinning himself. And like, I, I don't, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a comic, comic, uh, it, a, a picture, but, uh, like that's how he, um, you know, kind of were able to rise quickly through the Tang Imperial bureaucracy because, yeah. you know, his ability to kiss ass <laughs> and to, to the, um, to the imperial concubine and and such such uh, such win the favor of the the Tang emperor um, and he's um, so his father uh, you know his surname is An like we we uh, talk about earlier like the like Bukhara yeah Bukhara yeah um, but in fact he's uh, I I there are different accounts of his ancestry so I think one account is that his biological father was from Samarkand. Um, you know, his his mother is uh, a, a Turk, a Gok Turk uh, priestess, um, someone who has pretty high social ranking, basically. And, and mm. you know, but his, his biological father passed away and then he uh, like his his mother remarried another Sogdian, but this time from Bukhara. You know, that's why yeah. he took his stepfather's uh, surname on. Right. Uh, seem from Bukhara because he has a he has a half brother from that from his uh, mother's subsequent marriage who was you know also a general in the in the Tang court so so you know through his um, clan connection right he was able to rise through the uh, the imperial army and and his his amazing ass kissing skills um, which is a, the honey in the mouth at birth I'm sure yeah yes yes because there's, there was a one episode <laughs> where um he uh one time the the um while he was entertaining the emperor 
uh, the crown prince enters the room, and 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 Lu San didn't bow bow to the crown prince. So so the, the emperor mm-hmm. said, well, "Well, why why are you so rude to my son? Right, he's the crown prince." Um, I know some pretend to be dumb, play dumb. He said, "What is? <laughs> I'm a silly barbarian." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what is a crown prince? Um, <laughs> so, right. So, so the emperor said, "Well, he's like a like a reserve emperor, right?" Um, mm-hmm. So this this is where Anlusan does his honey in the mouth piece. He said, "Well, I have only heard of the emperor. The emperor. Yeah, I've not heard of backup emperors." <laughs> Emperor in reserve. I mean, of course, you know, like like the imp- that was just what, like honey to emperor's imp- ears. But at the same time, you know, like kind of um, like him and the crown prince were kind of <laughs> bitter rivals. You know, I, I think yes, they were were. But you know, that didn't improve the the relationship between the two, and 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 that's one of the major reason. Um, he 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 uh, eventually staged his rebellion. Basically, you know, like <laughs> like basically, uh, he's one heart attack away from getting decapitated. You know, he said, "Oh, these guys, <laughs> he's next to go." So you know, he he staged, um, and he also realized he kind of risen up as high as he could in the imperial bureaucracy because he controlled um, um, at the time he controlled the military. Uh, he he was uh, he controls uh, basically the Tang military base in north uh, based around uh, mm, Beijing yeah. present day Beijing and that's Hebei. Yes, yeah. he had a quite powerful army because at the time uh, you know Tang was engaged in constant battle with uh, uh, another nomadic people called Qi Qi Dan the Kitan um, and and so he was you know through war with Kitan he. You know, gather a huge, huge army under his command, and and at this time, you know, Tang was going through an expansionist phase. So all all the Tang army were kind of on the on the out on the periphery. They were, yeah. It's in the either in the Taran Basin or it's in the, the, the Tibetan borderland. Uh, yeah, exactly. You can't really talk about An Lushan without talking about what was happening in Sogdiana in the years leading up to his rebellion. So, um, essentially, oh what yes, happened, yes, yes, yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Otherwise, you put him in a vacuum, right? So, um, essentially, yes, yes, yes. The Arabs had been raiding Sogdiana from the six fifties with sort of limited success, and then in the early seven hundreds, they managed to conquer bits. But then. Um, you have a thing called the Abbasid Revolution in 750, um, where the entire Umayyad state crumbles and the Abbasids take over. And And the Abbasid Revolution is led by Persians. Um, Abu Muslim was a Persian from Khorasan, and many of his troops were Sogdian or Khorasani. And uh, in the turmoil that was the Abbasid Revolution in the 750s, Sogdiana became independent. It, was, it just wasn't important enough to bother dealing with all the rebellions that happened and the client kings that kept being ousted because there wasn't any such thing as a dynastic rule. Um, anyway, the Abbasids managed to, you know, manage the area and then they start expanding, uh, start expanding north. Now, meanwhile, the Tang Dynasty had been expanding further west, uh, really since, again, the 740s. And uh, these independent Sogdian city-states were kind of out. Some of them were allied with the Arabs. Some of them were allied with the Chinese. And one particular king, um, the 
the king of Fergana. Um, yeah, the king of Fergana was allied to the Chinese. And there was a diplomatic incident between the Fergannans and the city of Chach, which is Tashkent. And, and Chach was allied with the Arabs. So the king of Chach was captured and executed in China. And then Chach is like, hey, that's not fair. So they're like, we're going to call our friends the Arabs. Um, and the Arabs were like, yeah, all right, we'll help our vessel. Um, they marched north and the Chinese march west, and they meet at a battlefield in Kyrgyzstan. Um, this is the famous Battle of Talas, which for both of the powers involved was actually pretty insignificant. Uh, the Chinese were like, yeah, all right, fine, some random Arabs on the border. And the Arabs were like, yeah, whatever, some random Chinese on the border. Um, but it kind of marked the fate of Sogdiana and also Bactria further south. It, it you know, confirmed that they'd be part of the Islamic Arab world and not the Chinese world. Um, you know, and, and it didn't con just confirm that for Sogdiana, but also for all the city-states in Bactria as well that were really managing to hold their own against the Arabs because no one invades Afghanistan and manages to hold it really properly, do they? Um, so that's the world in which An Lushan was sort of, you know, growing up in. He, he'd just seen Sogdiana, um, you know, conquered by the Arabs in unconquered and reconquered and unconquered and reconquered and finally consolidated under Abbasid rule. And he's in, in he's probably in China looking at all this going, hmm, where do I fit into this? Um, a lot of Sogdians are moving further east into China because, um, well, why wouldn't you? Your homeland's just been raided and there's a nice fertile market where you're already friends with everybody and they can speak your language. So they're moving to China, including a lot of Sogdian troops. Now, Anlushan had quite a lot of Sogdian elite cavalry uh, with him during his rebellion, uh, which certainly must have helped turn the tide in quite a few of his battles against the Chinese, because the Sogdian cavalry were very formidable, not particularly numerous, but, you know, very brave, very, um, very valiant and had a very effective charge as well. Um, I mean, the heavy armor of the Sogdians was imitated in China and exported to China for quite a heavy price. And that's the world An Lushan lived in. That's a that's a, a thing I that, you know to my surprise you know like I when I start learning about Sogdiana is is when I find out oh wow like the the, the Tang Dynasty armor was actually quite was quite a bit influenced by by armor in in uh, from from the Sogdians um, yeah you know I like like it was it was uh, you know before. I was like, no. When I first saw like the the painting of Sogdian armor, I was like, oh, they look Chinese. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, it's actually the other way around. The way around. The yeah, the influence went from west to east, and and even like, uh, you know, if you go to Japan today, you know, if you go to just uh, uh, outside Kyoto, go to Nara, um, you know, Nara has a lot of uh, like temples. That was built uh, at the time when the, the, the Japanese were importing basically Chinese culture wholesale, mm -hmm. uh, including Buddhism. So in this Buddhist temple, old Buddhist temples, you will see the like the depiction of um, like the Buddhist um, guardians, right? And like the, the very fierce on very very fierce on of um, guardians and they they're wearing like uh you know the, the basically Tang dynasty style armor but those armor were actually like 
um, Sogdian heavily influenced, heavily influenced. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when we think of the Sogdians, we think merchants. We don't usually think warriors, but Sogdian archers were famous um, among the Arabs, and they were probably mounted archers. And there's a really cool quote from the sixth century Chinese uh, Chinese sources that describes a um, a group of bodyguards that the Sogdian kings had, and these bodyguards were called chakar, um, and it, they were kind of kind of like slave soldiers, but but not quite. More like a war band. Um, it certainly became the the origin for the Islamic ghulam uh, um, slave warrior system. Anyway, the, the quote goes, um, the king had a splendid army, the majority of his soldiers being chakar men. These were men of ardent valor who looked on death as going back to their kindred and against whom no foe could stand. Um, so, I mean, there you go. The Saudian warriors weren't particularly numerous, but they could certainly hold their own, and they did hold their own in the wars against the Arabs um, repeatedly. Did they um did they also have cataphracts like the Sasanians? Well, I mean it depends how you want to define cataphract. I, I hate that word because it's a Greek word yet has been applied it's been a, it's, it's a Greek word, but for some reason it's been applied it's been it's entered English as a loan word and it's been applied to everything where it shouldn't really have been. Like you don't really speak of Greek hoplites, do you? Sorry, you don't speak of Chinese hoplites. It just doesn't make sense, right? So I don't like using the word cataphract sure. in, in outside of a Greco-Roman sense. But if we're talking about armored guys on armored horses, then yes, the Sogdians absolutely had armored knights on armored horses. Um, there's one of the Mount Moch documents. Uh, so Mount Moch is a, um, it's, it's a fort, and there are loads of Sogdian documents discovered there, which helped us really paint a picture of um, the early diplomatic state in Panjikant and Samarkand. Anyway, one of the documents there is a is a, it's like a shopping receipt for a general, I think. And um, he's ordered uh, 10 sets or 11 sets of horse armor and 11 shields, presumably for his cavalry troop. Um, there aren't that many depictions of Sogdian horse armor. Uh, there's one that I can think of from the Faramars um, story. Uh, it's actually made of textile. Uh, it may have been worn on top of a metal thing, but you know, the textile is what we can see. Um, but yeah, I mean, armor existed. Um, armor for horses existed. Uh, there's a Sogdian word for horse armor as well. Um, which um, is may or may not be how it's pronounced, but it's how it's written. Oh, and I just like to also point out just um, uh, the, the background of, because there was a lot of political uh shift and change in central asia around 6 to a century i mean that the the one of the reason um you know the arabs and chinese were able to move in is because of the collapse of a gokturk empire um yeah. and and because because uh, the, you know the original is gokturks established themselves as kind of the overlord of the steppe and by mm -hmm. extension all the um, uh, uh, by extension, the, the Central Asian um, oasis cities, and and they, um, uh, but what happened? Like you say, the the <laughs> the, the steppe empires is inherently not very stable because you know you 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 can't you get you get lucky with a great uh, Kagan who you know unifies. Uh, the whole step and 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 that forms a strong army and they can go raid Iran and raid China but once he dies you know there's no guarantee of like a stable succession right exactly <laughs> like all, all the uncles and 
all the uncles and brothers and songs they all fight among each other and it's a big mess you know like a civil war uh breaks out and then you know kind of like that that's when the other powers you know in in Iran or China start to play you know put, start playing the divide and conquer exactly. uh, politics and 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 support uh, you know rival claimants and and that's how basically Tang China were able to destroy the Gok Turks uh, in its first iteration of the Gok Turk Empire um, and 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 came to become like the the overlord in, in Central Asia but um, you know like there was a, a brief resurgence of the Western Turks because um, uh, you know when the when the Chinese were preoccupied with the Tibetan Empire, there was a a, um, a, a Western Turkic tribe called the Turkish, uh, and yes. that that kind came briefly united the Western Turk uh, Turkic uh, Confederation again, and they they were a pain in the butt for the Arabs. The Arabs, they were, yeah. It was so. It, there was a. Hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, you're completely correct. The, the Turkish kind of, sort of temporarily took the power vacuum that the Gokturks left in the middle of the eighth century or early eighth century, and their main Khagan yeah. was a guy called a guy called Sulu Khagan, and uh, he yeah. really he really beat up the Arabs really badly. Um, in fact, the Arabs lost pretty much all of Sogdiana except for Samarkand um, during the Turkish raids, and the, the Turkish allied themselves with the Sogdian rulers, um, and ousted the. Um, ousted the Arabs. It was probably the Arabs' worst defeats um, ever, probably since they'd started expanding in the 7th century um, that happened in Sogdiana. Yes. yes um, but, but yeah, unfortunately, but then, unfortunately, what happens oh, is Sulu loses, Sulu Khan loses one battle and that's it. His legitimacy is mute. <laughs> It's such a such a blinding reversal too, because Sulu was on the road. He was basically uh, on the campaign to push the last remaining Arab garrisons out of Central Asia once for all, and, and he was campaigning in like a corner of Afghanistan where the yeah. Arab uh, last Arab garrison was holding out. But it, it was in the middle of the winter, so so you know, like the land can't support such a large hole so his his troops have to like be split up to go search for provisions well another word for like raid and pillage but (laughs) so so at at this time the the arabs made a daring raid on his headquarter uh you know when it was lightly defended because they they did not expect this you know they 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 had arabs pinned down and 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 they're about to strike the final blow, and so 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 he sent out most of his, his men out to gather supplies. So at this time, the the Arabs stage stage a, a raid in the snow and and struck the the main camp of Sulu Khan, and and you know in a panic, you know Sulu Khan you know fled, you know left his uh his his wife and concubines being captured by the Arabs, and, and that that one. That defeat, one defeat, you know, his, his legitimacy just doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, the, the one entire, defeat, yeah, it destroy his prestige, and that's that's a problem with the the Step Empire, the steppe right? Like, exactly, and then that's it. The, the Turkish just collapsed. That there's no more yeah. Turkish after that. Yeah, yeah, because like people likes winners, right? <laughs> when you are on the road, everybody joined you. The Fochu, the Kagan, the <laughs> the, the overlord yeah. of the Step. But as soon as they sense weakness, the knives come out. And, That's and it, the, exactly. 
through uh, Kagan because he's a, it's actually his relative. I think one of his uncle, you know, murdered him, right? And mm. then then the civil war breaks out. You know, of course, everybody fighting for control, and then Turkish just completely collapsed, and yeah. that's that vacuum were uh, allowed. You know, the Arabs to come back in, come back yeah, in, definitely. and also on China was. Uh, you know, also pushing east. So that's how we got that uh, epic, well, supposedly epic battle of, of Talat. But but you are you are right. At the time, to both the um, the, the Abbasids and and Tang China, it was not that significant of a battle because uh, you know in in 19- they, they both had bigger fish to fry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because in the Battle of Talas in. 751 it happened in 751 you know Hmm. but but that wasn't even the biggest loss suffered by the chinese in that year because that same year uh you know the 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 tang sent 60,000 troops into yunnan trying to defeat the kingdom of nanzhao who had uh ally with the tibetans and and the the whole army was wiped out. I mean that that was the the, the most disastrous defeat in in seven fifty one for the Chinese. So so what they what they suffered at Talas didn't even register. And and no, but, exactly. but like, like yeah, we'll do it again next year. Uh, was the Chinese right? Exactly, exactly. And, and that was a plan, right? It's like oh, no big deal. And, you know, in a couple of years we'll, we'll regroup and we'll take the city back. But they didn't get that oh, chance. Wait. Because... <laughs> no, they did not. Because Am Lushan was like. Hey, uh, I could do a better job than you. I want to be emperor, and so he launches this huge rebellion, which basically just shakes Tang China to the core and almost wipes it out. Um, he very nearly becomes the emperor of China. Um, the Tang state almost completely collapses, and at the same time, you have the Tibetans on the southern border of China going, "Hey, China's not looking too healthy. We could get a piece of that." And uh, I mean. Th- it's kind of Uyghurs to the rescue, really, at this point. The Tang are like, ah, help us, please. Yes, yes. Basically, at that time, like, uh, uh, China's, uh, Tang China, like, Uyghur, previous, previous to Anusan Rebellion, the Uyghurs were vassals of Tang, right? And, hmm. and but, but, but after that, after Anusan Rebellion, the power balance totally shifted towards the Uyghurs. <laughs> the Uyghurs calling the shots now, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Even on surface, the relation is friendly, right? Like so the Tang will send the princess and the annual payment to the Uyghur for the horses. But like it's, in effect, you know, it's a, it's a huge payment. Um, you know, it like it's just a, it's 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 basically another form of tribute, right? Like they're paying like the the Uyghurs uh, fifty thousand boats of silk every year. I mean that that um, uh, I mean Sogdians uh, actually did profit from that because at that time they were kind of the the merchant class of the Uyghur exactly. Empire. Yeah. Um, that's when also like the Silk Road kind of um diverted north through mongolia because the tibetans they they, they pushed north and captured the they Khushi occupied Korra. most of xinjiang yeah the, yeah and and mazartog and, and the Khushi Korra, exactly. yeah yeah and and then the tibetan captured the kingdom of Khotan and all the the, the Tarim basin um took 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 out that area from the Tang garrisons there and so so yeah so so, so the silk road was forced to go north through Mongolia, basically through the Uyghur territory, um, to then then further further west. And and then the the the, the Tang 
um, actually start ally with Arabs with the Abbasid to team to against fight Tibetans. <laughs> yes, because Tibetans became the biggest power in Central Asia at one point, which uh, is because... the most unexpected thing to happen ever. I don't think yeah. anybody else in Eurasia expected this because they're like, ah, you know, there's a bunch of mountains. Not a single city in there. I mean, sure, there may be one or two, but you know, it's not a, it's not exactly a center of civilization. I suppose well, the Chinese and the Arabs probably saw it like the Persians saw the Arabs. Like, ah, you know what? So there's a bunch of desert. Who cares? Then, oh God, we're being destroyed. You know, ten years yeah. later or something. Um, I mean, there's there's some really cool uh, descriptions of the Tibetan military in the Chinese records, like completely covered. You know, both the soldiers and their horses completely covered in male armor, leaving only slits for the eyes. And you yes. have these Tibetan infantry dressed like that and the cavalry dressed like that. And they're just, um, you know, advancing upon Chang'an and um, Mazartar and Khotan, uh, unstoppable. And they they even expand into Kashmir, into Ladakh and into Nepal and into the Fergana Valley as well. Yep, they basically kind of replace uh, the the role that Tang Empire used to play in in the in Fergana Valley. Um, now mm-hmm. now it was the Tibetan versus the Arabs. Um, and but the um, uh, and but the, the I'm actually surprised to see you know some Sogdian artifact uh, in in the Tibetan court. Like there were actually a quite bit of Sogdian influence uh, on Tibet as well, because apparently some Sogdian refugees fled central you know most of them went to china but some of them actually went to tibet uh yes exactly and because um, most go ahead so most we've got quite a few examples of uh tibetan um silverware and and you know precious metal and stuff dating from the 8th and 9th century and almost all of it is sogdian made uh made specifically either in Tibet uh, for a Tibetan market or made in Sogdiana to be exported to Tibet. Um, It kind of replaced China as the main export market for a little while, just because, I mean, the Tibetans inhabited the export routes. So all the trade was being diverted south to Lhasa instead of east to Chang'an. Right. Which is, yeah, it's kind of cool like that. Yeah. One of my favorite places. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So I got to I got to think about this. It's uh, one of my favorite pieces of uh, early Tibetan art. It's um, it, it's published um, by Amy Heller. It's this huge silver jug. Um, it's it's like eighty centimeters tall and it's got I a round it. bottom and a long tall neck. I, yeah, it, it's the silver jug of Lhasa or yes. Jokhang. Even you've seen it in real life? Uh, no, 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 not in real life. I've seen the pictures. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, because I was gonna say that would be amazing. So it's huge, and at the top, it's got what is probably a molded camel head, which harks back to Sogdians and the importance that they placed on camels. Um, and around the bottom, there's scenes in 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 gilt um, of of dancers and musicians and stuff and wrestlers um, wearing Sogdian or Tibetan dress, styled in the Sogdian fashion. Um, you've got Sogdian decor on the top. It's it's just a really cool piece, and also it's huge. It's eighty centimeters. I mean, can you imagine the amount of grape wine that must have held? Oh, it was a good party. <laughs> it was <laughs> it's a really party. a good party. Yeah. I mean, hey, the Sogdians were the great. You know, they were the best partiers in in the ancient world. So, yep, and um, so I mean, like Anlusan Rebellion almost kind of would you say kind of mark the kind of the start of the decline or oh, i mean no no it's really the arab invasion started the decline but but 
Anusa Rebellion was kind of a crescendo, right? Nail in, nail in the coffin. Yeah, yeah, it was the nail in the coffin. Because, um, I mean, prior to the Arab invasion, or even after the Arab invasion, the Sogdians had always had a safe home in China. Um, but that kind of stopped with the Anlushan Rebellion. Because, um, I mean, the, the immediate thing was that most of the Sogdians didn't really support his rebellion. And they were like, I don't want to be associated with that guy because then the Chinese won't like me. And I kind of like living here. Um, so they became sinicized fairly quickly and they, you know, they changed their religion. They changed their names to Chinese names. Um, and that was kind of the end of Sogdian identity in China. Now, Sogdian identity remains in Central Asia. And this is sort of the Sogdians gift to the modern world. Um, what happened in Central Asia was the Sogdian city-state still kind of survived up until the ninth century, up until the um, the Samanids started conquering Central Asia. Um, but there was a big inflow of Persian refugees and Persian merchants and Persian priests and you know Persians. Um, and Persian started to become the main minority identity in the Abbasid and Umayyad states. And so the Sogdians go well. You know, the, the United States was very hierarchical. You had Arabs and you had non-Arabs. And the Sogdians were non-Arabs, obviously. And they're looking at their world and they're going, okay, so we're not Arabs. We're a pretty small minority. Um, let's identify with those guys, the Persians. They're doing pretty well for themselves. Um, and so Persian starts to become predominant in Central Asia. And you have Persian institutions like glass making starting to appear. And you have Persian sealing practices starting to appear. Um, so long story short, the Sogdians um, had individual bits of clay for individual seals, whereas the Persians had one big lump of clay and everybody would stamp their seal in that big lump. It's called a bulla. Um, the Sogdians started doing that and they started adapting the Persian language. The Sogdian language is still used up until the 11th century, but it's becoming rarer and rarer. Anyway, um, now what happens is because Central Asia is so decentralized, because it never really assimilated under Abbasid and Umayyad rule, um, it's the ideal breeding ground for rebellions against the Arab state. And so in eastern Iran, in Sistan and Transoxiana and Bactria, you have a couple of Iranian dynasts who appear and they're claiming the legacy of the old Sasanians and the Parthians. And the first one of these is the is the Tahirids and the Safarids who are based in Sistan. But after that, they're followed by the Salmonids. And the Salmonids, they've read their Shahnameh. They claim descent from a character called Bahram Chobin, who was one of the Sasanian generals. Um, he um, launched a rebellion against the Sasanian crown court, and that was ousted. And then he uh, just fled into Central Asia. Um, the Salmonids well, claimed descent from him. play a huge role in the, in the Roman-Sasanian uh, war because... He was uh, he was a general that defeated the the Turkic invasion. Everybody, <laughs> uh, yeah, he was defeated civil wave of Turkic invasion. But then, uh, but then you know he was blamed for his defeat at the hands of hands of Romans. So he decided, screw mm. you, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be the king, king of kings. Right? Why do I have to bow? Well, I can do it better than you. Yeah, and, and then and then he, well, it, yeah, he staged a rebellion, and then the 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 king gets killed, but but you know the king's son comes to throne. So okay, it's all my father's fault. 
you know, we understand you are you are innocent. Can you just go back to your post now, and we're all okay? And he's like, hell no, you know, I'm not a. He's like, no, I enjoy being Chancha, exactly. Yeah, no, I'm not a child. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. You know, you once I start rebelling, I better go through with it. So, so the the the, <laughs> the Persian uh, king of kings. This was um. This was uh. This is Khosrow uh, the second. Yeah, it's Khosrow the second. He fled to to uh, Byzantine, right, as seeking the help of Eastern Roman mm-hmm. uh, emperor. Uh, I think it was Maurice, and then uh, I think you so, know, yeah. with uh, with the backing of the Roman army, he came back and defeated the uh, Bahram Chobin and forced Chobin to Chobin, to yes. Central Asia to seek. Um, uh, refugee with his former enemy, the Turks, <laughs> and and yeah, so so, so exactly. I, that that's funny that the Samanid would claim descent from from Chobin because they, I could, would imagine Chobin was kind of a controversial figure, sort of kind of. Hmm. Well, so maybe maybe not. So um, you have to look at late Sasanian Iran was split between essentially two factions. You had the Persians or the Parsig faction, and you had the Parthian or the Pahlavig faction. And uh, the Bahram Chobin was a member of the House of Mihran, and this was one of the Pahlavig factions, right? And um, the Pahlavigs and the Parsigs did not like each other very much at all, and especially so after Khosrow I in the 6th century decided to reduce the power of all the noble houses, right? Um, so Bahram Chobin said he was legitimate. He said that when he was rebelling, it was the end of a uh, 500-year cycle. So the Iranians viewed history cyclically. You had 500 years of Pishtagians, 500 years of Kayanids, 500 years of Arsacids, 500 years of Sasanians, and now 500 years of Mihranids, which would be a Parthian sort of thing again. Um, this again links, so he's Parthian. So he links back into the Sistanis, who are also Parthian. And um, this is why the sort of Shahnameh comes to fruition in the Samanid court. Uh, the Samanids linked themselves with the Mihrans and therefore the characters of Rostam and Faramars and Zal, um, the heroes uh-huh. of the Shahnameh. Um, in mainland Iran, here's the interesting thing. In mainland Iran, in northern Iran, you have a dynasty called the Buyids. Um, they appearing in the north. And the Buyids claim dynasty from the Sasanians themselves. And the Buyids and the Samanids have quite a bit of friction between the two because they're kind of trying to inhabit the same niche, the same geographical area. Uh, the Buyids are like, yeah, we're Sasanians. And someone is like, well, okay, we can't both be Sasanians. Let's be Parthian. We'll be Parthian. Um, I mean, I'm sure the genealogy was completely accurate as well. Um, you know, uh, we have uh, traces of Bahram Chobin's children and where they ended up in Central Asia. And they did eventually, you know, they, they did give birth to the ancestors of the Samanids. But ideologically, it was, it was you know, a, a reinvigoration of the old Parthian uh, Persian or, or Parsig Pahlavig rivalry that happened between the Samanids and the Buyids. And they can also claim uh, legitimacy by the being the initiator of the new cycle, right? That that totally makes sense. Of the new, yeah, cycle. definitely, yeah, oh, yes, exactly, uh, exactly. Okay, that, that makes so lot. the Samanids, uh, yeah, the the Samanids um, were big patrons of Persian culture, and like I said, the Shahnameh was written during their time, um, but. 
you it, this wouldn't have happened in say Mesopotamia or um or or or, or Fars province because it just didn't have the social mobility to have random nobodies becoming kings and generals and launching rebellions. It was a lot more hierarchical, um, and that's a remnant of the loose um, political and social order of the Sogdian city states. Um, you know where you had anybody could be a king if you were popular and wealthy enough. Um, anybody could be a merchant if you had the means to go travel. Um, the Iranian intermezzo is a remnant of the Sogdian social and political order. Um, and so it's kind of the reason why we have an Iran and for that matter, an Afghanistan and a Tajikistan nowadays and why they speak Persian and not Arabic. It's to do with the rise of Iranian culture again in the 10th century um, based on the Sogdian loose social political order. That's fascinating. Wow. I mean, that, that makes it is. It really sense. Is. Um, I just want to add one more thing about Sogdians in China. They kind of lingered mm-hmm. on a little bit longer after the Anlusan Rebellion because they found a new patron in the Uyghur Empire in Mongolia, right? Because, like, yes. They, yes the Uyghurs, uh, they met the some Sogdian priests and they converted to Manichaeism. So by extension, the Sogdian uh, community in China come the kind of uh, kind of come under protection of the Uyghurs, you know, because, uh, you know, so, so the Tang, Tang um, led the, you know, basically kind of, they become sort of a respected guest because they're under protection of the Uyghur Kagan, who is very powerful. And, and uh, but, uh, you know, the Uyghur empire itself only lasted about a hundred years, you know, same, same story yeah. of the, with the steppe empires, you know, they got destroyed by the Kyrgyz, uh, from the north and and the Uyghur empire collapsed in Mongolia like massive uh uh caused mass migration of the Uyghurs to flood to uh Tarim Basin where they uh, hmm. uh so the Tibetan empire actually collapsed around the same year as the Uyghur empire which is very convenient yeah, yeah this is the, I mean yeah. it's, I I I, I suspect there might be some kind of climate change happening around that time. I mean, there, I, I mean, a, a lot of things happen in the eighth century. A, a lot of major shifts happen in the eighth yeah. century. You'd probably be onto something there. Yes, not something I've looked into, but you know, these sorts of climactic things. Mm. Yeah, I think just too much of a coincidence that these two major step empire kind of collapse right <laughs> around the same time, like literally within a year. Yeah, and. And then the um, uh, because I did think there was maybe a, like a spike of a little ice age around that time, and and uh, because it, the, the his Chinese historical record did indicate in the last days of the Uyghur Empire there was a was a huge bad blizzard storm uh, that was killing a lot of livestock, and and so and, and you know this is take uh, Kyrgyz took this advantage to attack the Uyghur. Uh, camp and and so so a lot of the re- refugee Uyghur refugees streaming out of Mongolia and they defeated the Tibetan garrisons in Tarim Basin took it over and so that's how Uyghurs ended up in Xinjiang in in uh, in Tarim Basin and and but but in that process when you know when the Uyghur Empire collapsed the Sogdians in China lost their Patron, there's, there's a protector. protector. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where what you like the 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 real synthesization process really happened. It kind of got accelerated mm. during that time. Um, 
um, because now they're kind of uh, they're just being this foreign looking people <laughs> in China with no yeah. special yeah, status. Um, uh, I mean, and, and I think Tang China became really introspective Tang China became really introspective after the Anlushan Rebellion, um, and because Anlushan happened kind of the same time as the Tibetan invasions, Chinese were went like, okay, all these foreigners. We don't like them. They're causing problems for us. Right, um, right. And that's kind of when it starts becoming a lot more introspective um, and, than it was and, in earlier centuries. And also it got cut, it was kind of cut off from the Silk Road, you know, because the Tibetan... It was because the Tibetans just took it that over. part of the land. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the, you know, and then, you know, even though the, the Silk Road kind of rerouted through, through the Uyghur Empire in Mongolia, there was always that kind of inherent tension. <laughs> yeah. That was and it's it's harder terrain up north. It's it's way harder terrain up north. It's yeah. it's step. It's open step. You're just you're ripe for picking. I mean, even though officially the the the, the Uyghur Khanate and the Tang Empire remain on friendly relation. I mean, much more friendly than say the 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 Gokturk times um but still yeah. there's that there's that inherent tension because basically tang was paying off the uyghurs every year <laughs> to keep yes. them happy um and uh yes. so so yeah so so when so that's why when the 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 uyghur um uh empire collapsed the manichaeism and all these different um uh, I think Sogdian religion uh, got banned in China. There was a there was yeah, also exactly. coincided with a ban on Buddhism in China at the same time. So a whole bunch of religion got banned, <laughs> but you yeah. know Buddhism survived just because you know it, it has a large base. But like uh, the other other like the Manichaeism and the other Manichaeism didn't uh, really exactly. Manichaeism was just really easily absorbed into other things. Yeah, and Zoroastrianism. Yeah. It was probably never that big in China to begin with, anyway. Exactly, exactly. Um, realistically, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that was uh, the, but but um, there were so so what, a lot of the Sogdian finds, um, you know, came from Dunhuang, right? This is like basically the our like our treasure trove that was uh, hidden away in a, a, a Buddhist cave in uh, on the side of the cliff in the. In the um, yes, the Hershey corridor in Gansu, and and the um, but Dunhuang actually, um, so so after the Tibetan Empire collapsed, the Uyghur Empire collapsed, um, that air Dunhuang was being controlled by by the Tibetan Empire for about hundred mm-hmm. years, and then um, and then the the locals in Dunhuang rebelled against the uh, the Tibetan imperial rule. Well, the Tibetan Empire was collapsing anyway, so they they declared their their autonomy, and then they um you know start paying uh tribute to Tang, like claim to be Tang subject, right? Well, it's kind of yeah. kind of nominal because really like Tang <laughs> doesn't have much influence over there. Um, there was a family uh. Uh, uh, the, 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 the Cao clan eventually took over Dunhuang, became its ruler. And the Cao clan, Cao clan, they claim descent from Cao Cao of Three Kingdoms. But I was reading um, some of the latest uh, uh, scholarly research on Dunhuang from the on the on the Chinese from the Chinese side. So they 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 mm. now believe that the the Cao clan was actually uh, Sogdian. Because because Cao oh, right. Cao is one of the 
nine clans of Zhao Wu. Nine Zhao Wu clans. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I forgot what the Zhao, which kingdom was Zhao corresponding to, but it was one of the Sogdian city states, and and they they showed that the Zhao is uh, Zhao is Kabudan, which is a little bit a little bit west of Samarkand. Okay, okay. So so the 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 the, the Zhao clan of Dunhuang they um because they they have such an obscure origin. Right, so they when hmm. they finally came to power in Dunhuang, they wanted to uh, construct a very uh, illustrious genealogy. Right, so who who is a famous Cao we know? Of course, Cao Cao of the Three Kingdoms. <laughs> okay, <right? yeah. laughs> so so they claim descent from Cao Cao, but in fact they were originally Sogdians. So that was kind of the. The, uh, like a that's pretty cool footnote yeah of Sogdians yeah. in China hey, Dunhuang, Dunhuang has been great for archaeology we have a ton of uh, Sogdian manuscripts that have survived from Dunhuang or nearabouts uh, one of them is part of the Shahnameh part of the Rostam stories and it's the story of how Rostam goes and fights some demons with his horse Rash. his horse Rash is a very clever horse because it actually tells uh, Rash devises the strategy by which to defeat the demons. Um, there is a full reading of the entire manuscript on my blog, um, but there's a, there's quite a lot of text that I've found from Dunhuang, and I can read a short piece out for your oh, listeners please. if you would like me to. Yes. Please. So this is a religious manuscript. It's the Asham Vohu, and the Asham Vohu is a really important Zoroastrian um, prayer. And in English, uh, there's a couple of different translations because it's really hard to translate Avestan, right? Um, there's a couple of different translations, but the one I'll give to you it goes like this. It says, Righteousness is the best of all that is good. As desired, what is being desired is truth for him who represents the best truth, right? The version in Avestan um, reads like, Asham Vohu Vahishtam Ashti, Ushta Ashti, Ushta Ahmai, Hyat Ashai, Vahishtai Asham. Okay, that's Avestan. Um, I have two Sogdian versions. The first is archaic Sogdian, which was um, which is how the original has been written, and it's written in kind of a Sogdian language that is older than all the manuscripts we know. It it's probably like archaicizing, like you know, like how um, Catholic Catholicism is done as Latin. Latin. Sure. It would be that sort of thing, right? Um, and so this would read like. Um, Urtam wechwashtam ishti usta ishti ushtahmai yat urtai achwashtai urtam. That's old Sogdian. And in classical Sogdian, which is the Sogdian of the 7th to 9th centuries, it would read Urtu wechwashtu ishti usta ishti usta uchmi yat urtia achwashtia urtu. That exclusive is, for Clash listener only. <laughs> yes, that is fascinating. I mean, like, how how did they reconstruct the sound of the Sogdian, old Sogdians? Um, that is a very good question. Uh, so I'm not a linguist, so I can only speak from what I've read. Um, but we have a lot of Sogdian manuscripts. There's a huge corpus of Sogdian manuscripts. So, you know, clever linguists can work out the grammar and the vocabulary pretty easy by comparing Sogdian to, say, Bactrian or Persian or Khwarazmian. But the best clue came from a obscure little-known village in Tajikistan, uh, or little-known valley, rather, called the uh, Yaznob Valley, which is near Sogd province, near the you know places of Panjikant, all those places. And here, the there's an ethnic minority called the Yaznob people, and they don't speak Tajik, they speak a language called Yaznobi. 
And Yarnobi is an East Iranian language like Sogdian, and it's actually quite similar to Sogdian. It's thought to share a common ancestor um, with the Sogdian language. So, you know, we can reconstruct it from that as well. Um, and I think that's how linguists have done it most of the time. That's how they've reconstructed their pronunciation, is by comparing with uh, Yarnobi, as, as well as, of course, other Iranian languages. Uh, okay, there's one uh, aspect of Sogdian life I, I would like to cover, and that is food. Sure thing. That is food. Of course. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's one of the most important part of culture. <laughs> I mean, uh, you're not wrong there. <laughs> so um, we have actually quite not that many good resources on what the Sogdians ate, but it probably wasn't that dissimilar to, you know, you look at what you can grow locally. So rice uh, was grown in major quantities in the Ferghana Valley from as early as the third century. So rice probably made a major part of their staple, as well as uh, grains like wheat and barley. And they've actually found barley grains in um, in the archaeological excavations at Panjikant. Um, and of course, wheat as well. These were probably turned into breads, and we know exactly what Sogdian bread looked like because it's been found in the Astana cemeteries in uh, Xinjiang in western China. And to correspond to that, we have a bread stamp uh, made out of wood with iron nails found in Panjikant. And uh, it's basically identical to modern Central Asian bread. It's round, it's uh, risen, there's a raised edge and like a dotted pattern in the middle that makes the inside, the, the, the middle bit kind of flatter than the, than the rim. Um, I've baked some of this. We, we bake this stuff for our um, regular um, living history shows. Um, the Sogdians probably also ate, you know, pastries and things um, stuffed with meats and, and vegetables, uh, similar to the, um, um, I, I know this still exists in China as well, and in the Central Asian countries nowadays, it's called samsa, which is the same thing as the I had samsa. I had samsa in a, in okay. an Afghan restaurant in India, Indiana, of all places. And... Uh, of all places yeah just, just a side side story i so one time i i i i was trying to impress this afghan girl in uh, uc U, usc and so i i was telling her about you know i had this kind of uh this this dumpling called samsa in uh in in an afghan restaurant in in indiana and she's like you mean samosa samosa is indian <laughs> i was like flabbergasted because i was like uh uh <laughs> it's like damn it <laughs> i'm just trying to impress her now 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 she made like i'm a fool <laughs> so no but, but, but the indians got it from this from the iranians so you know you're, you're really correct you are um yeah and they do it differently so i mean the indian one is fried um whereas the central asian one is baked um which is a pretty major difference um and the best central asian ones have these layered pastry which i haven't quite figured out how to do perfectly um i did one batch and it turned out amazing and did another batch and it turned out like garbage so um i'm not the best person <laughs> to ask but what you do is, is is you roll your pastry super 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 thin and then you you know you layer it with with butter and then you you roll it into a cylinder and then cut it into little chunks and flatten it like you know put it on its on its side and flatten it and that's meant to give you layers and i I don't think I've quite rolled the pastry thin enough in most of my batches, but one day I will get there. Um, <laughs> there's a ninth century. 
One day I'll get there. There's a ninth century recipe of how to make these things uh, from um, Iraq, and um, the Mesopotamians were frying them, unlike the Central Asians who baked them. Uh, but probably had the similar sort of spices, you know, cumin, pepper, um, other herbs and stuff, um, in some lamb mince or, or diced lamb or something. Stick it inside one of these little pastry parcels and either fry or bake it, you know, depending on what you prefer. Or you could steam them as well. And if you steam them, you get momos um, or mantu. Everyone call it. You know, ah, that, that's a popular Tibetan. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's another. So, so in in, in Chinese, uh, it's called manto, and but in um, uh, but now now today mostly it's called baozi because today in in, in Mandarin, yeah, manto refers to the kind of just like the 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 bun the bread bun without filling, whereas baozi. The okay. one with um, actual meat inside, but in the old Chinese, manto is kind of referred to everything with or without filling. Like, but but um, so so there's a different um, version. Like in Korean, it's called mandu, but it, which is a big dumpling, and and in All Tibetan, right. it's called momo. Uh, 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 yes. or, or in Nepal, in, also in Nepal, but in some part of the northwest China. Um, it's also called momo, <laughs> like like in Sanxi, right? Like all the uh, uh, right. uh, and all the close to the old Silk Road areas, they're also called momo. Right. And and in Turkey, uh, in Turkish, it's called manti. Um, you know, like so. Yeah, manta, and that's where the Persian word montu uh, comes from. It's it's from. I'm not sure which one came first, the Turkish manta or the Persian montu, but yeah. So, you know, so there's made. a. Uh, yeah, so so I mean, like that's one of the thing I always wanted to figure out. So where did that word come from first? <laughs> because like originally, like if if you ask me ten, twenty years ago, I, I would say, oh, for sure it's Chinese, right? <laughs> and I'd be like, for sure it's Tibetan, you know? Yeah, you know, but now I'm not I mean, so sure because because Manto, like uh, I mean, there were some. Some legend, fa- most famously associated with uh, Zhuge Liang from the Three Kingdoms, right? Some oftentimes he was credited with inventing manto uh, on his southern exp- expedition, and supposedly there's a story of how uh, he um, they, they are trying to cross a tributary of the uh, Yangtze River, the upper reach of Yangtze River, um, but 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 like there was a huge storm. And and some locals told him, oh, you have to appease uh, the local river gods, and 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 the, the, the traditional way to do it, you you gotta kill some uh, uh, captives, you know, offer like human human heads as offerings. Uh, so so uh, was like, okay, we can't do that. But so instead, he he had people um, making bread doughs in the shape of a human head with like meat fillings and stuff and passing the in the in the river and then and of course the, the river gods were appeased and the the river become calm and they, they, they the army were able to cross but that that's just a story right because because the 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 manto i don't know it, it, it actually is, it, is, that, um, is that from the romance or the annals that's from the romance of three kingdoms romance. i don't know if okay it's original. Is it- go ahead so, I mean, right. I think the earliest one I've found uh, dates from the Western Jin Dynasty, and it's from uh, the the Shuqi, Shu Shi, okay, whatever, I'm not pronouncing it right. And um, it's a dish called the Laowan, which is a dumpling stuffed with meat. And so he describes that how he, uh, you know, he, he uses um, minced lamb, pork, sliced ginger, onions, um, flavored with cinnamon, uh, 
Fagara Thoroughwort, I don't know what that is, salt and bean relish. And you cook these in a bamboo steamer. And so Shushi is describing how the cook like just quickly turns out dumpling after dumpling after dumpling after another, drops them in the bamboo steamer, and then like the queues are filling up with this guy's uh, this guy's um this guy's bakery to to eat these um eat this fast food, this uh, this stuff. Um, and that's that's the uh, Western mention of the name Manto, right? But 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 you know that that's it's called uh, Lawa, yeah. But you also said that the, the earliest archaeological find of the bread uh, dumpling was inside filling inside is actually from Taran Basin, right? Yeah, the Astana cemeteries again dated to the early Tang late Sui uh, late Sui periods. Um, it's really good for food, actually. We found bread. We found these pastries stuffed with meat and stuff. We found cookies, um, fried dough pastry things that might have been like donuts or, or some other sweet thing dripped in sugary syrup. Um, these were all probably parts of Sogdian or, or broader Central Asian diet. Um, now, the Sogdians were a big fan of their fruit as well. Um, so the most famous fruit, of course, were the grapes. And uh, they exported these grapes to... Um, to China. And the Chinese word for grape or the Chinese word for wine actually derives from an Iranian uh, Iranian word. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it derives from an Iranian word. It's because the grapes were um, imported. Grape wine was imported. Um, I um, think it's budo in Chinese or Japanese. Putao. Putao. It's putao in modern yeah, exactly. And and um, uh, just a little side note for uh, our audience who might be fan of uh, Romance of Three Kingdoms. Um, so uh, historically, not not from the romance, not from the novel, but but from the annals of the records of Three Kingdoms, the, the son of Cao Cao who succeeded him, Cao Pei, is known to be the lover of grapes. I mean, he he, he <laughs> really loves grapes. <laughs> he even yeah. wrote a poem about grapes and about how grapes are like the king of fruits. So, well, it's a little... I mean, it was a, it was a um, it was one of those fancy foreign imports at that time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, the the word is is budao in Chinese. It's uh, botak in in Iranian languages in in Middle Persian. Um, so there's your linguistic connection there. Um, the Sogdians had a lot of wine. They had a lot of grape wine. And uh, there's a Chinese text called the Bowuji, written in the late 3rd century. And I quote, um, The Western regions possess a grape wine which is not spoiled by the accumulation of years. A popular tradition among them states that it is drinkable up to 10 years. But if you drink it then, you'll be drunk for the fullness of a whole month and only then be relieved of it. Um, Sogdian wine, strongest stuff in Eurasia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. Um, and, and another uh, kind of uh, footnote to the Sogdian legacy, I think, uh, um, is is like really their the contribution and also also the broader Central Asian contribution to the to the Islamic Golden Age. Um, mm, I think yes. a, a great book that that covers this is the uh, Lost Enlightenment by Frederick by Frederick Starr. Star. Yes, definitely. yeah. Have you read it? I have uh, read bits of it. Um, okay, yeah. I I got it on. I listened to it on uh, on Audible. I, it's great. I mean, I learned a lot about about. I mean, uh, Central Asia and 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 one thing that really struck me is how. Um, it's because like uh, the area of Central Asia, especially like Sogdiana and also Bactria, 
these the the people they sit on this has for millennia sat on the the crossroad of civilizations that they、mm-hmm. they you know have the they have been borrowing p- bits and pieces of different culture and religion and and they were like the uh it was very natural for you know be- for them to became like the the transmitter of knowledge. You know, back to oh yeah, definitely.、Uh, you know, because you have Indian tradition right on your doorstep, the Chinese tradition right there. You have somewhat of a legacy of the Greek tradition all the way back to、um, Hellenistic times. You have the Iranian tradition right on your doorstep. You know, everything just becomes melted together. And yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense that the、um, the main cultural and scientific advances of the Islamic Golden Age would come from the Eastern Iranian world. Yeah, and they a lot of the contribution they made is specifically through、um, translation,、uh, you know, because there、yes. were a lot. They they were、um, they were even before the Islamic conquest, they were in the habit of you know translating, say, the Buddhist text or the Zoroastrian、mm-hmm. text, and and from different languages. And and so one of the uh, 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 tasks they、uh, performed was. To translate all these different、uh, texts from different sources and different civilization into Arabic, and 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 to introduce like that kind of build up the foundation for、uh, flourishing of the you know the Islamic Golden Age, and and yes, a lot of the the inventions and and and、uh, a lot of the notables of that Islamic Golden Age are these scholars coming from Central Asia, which is quite yes, amazing.、Absolutely. If you、Absolutely. think about it, yeah, yeah. Okay, well,、uh, this was fascinating. Like, is there anything else you would like to cover on Sapiens? <laughs> um, I think we've covered pretty much everything, to be honest.、Uh, unless you go into really obscure, nuanced stuff that you only get from like speaking to archaeologists and things like that. But I think, I think, hopefully, your listeners by now have an idea as to who the Sogdians were, why they were important, and what happened in various periods of Sogdian history.、Um, as then, they've also managed to listen to a couple of samples of the Sogdian language, which is kind of cool. Okay, so if、um, our you,、uh, listeners want to follow you on social media. Uh, where where would they do go do that?、Um, so the best place now is Twitter, and if you search for Eran Uturan, that's spelled E R A N U D T U R A N, all one word.、Um, you, you can get to us on Twitter.、Uh, we have a Patreon、um, where I post、um, twice a week. On a Wednesday, there's usually a, a blog article or a photo set or something like that. And on a Friday, I do something linguistic. So I'll either post a piece of Sogdian calligraphy or. Bactrian or Middle Persian, but mainly Sogdian, or I'll do a, a recording of、um, a historic text, me reading it aloud with the translation and some commentary and notes and things.、Um, so yeah, you can check us out on Patreon, check us out on Twitter. We also have Facebook and Instagram too. The Instagram is not really used, but you know, it's it's there, I guess. Yeah, Twitter and Patreon. That's us. That, that's fantastic. We'll also put、uh, links on our show notes on our Patreon page for for people who are interested. Uh, so you, you don't have to.、Um, you can just click on the link、uh, to follow. And this is a it's it's this is a fascinating two hour and a half、uh, yeah, conversation. I can I can geek out on this for hours.、Uh, We probably could. We'll have to come back sometime to revisit some of the sites in a bit more detail. So we've done an overview of the Sogdians,、um, but 
I like to let we can look at in the future episodes, um, you know, say Samarkand in a bit more detail or Bukhara in a bit more detail or Panjakant in a bit more yes. detail. Yeah, we can do that. Definitely. Yes. Uh, we actually I actually did record with uh, one member of your uh, group, Amir, um, on uh, we, we, we recorded the first half of the Battle of Kahai. Um, uh-huh where the Roman army was defeated by the Parthian general, uh, Serena, right? Yeah. Uh, did I say that right? And, 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 yeah. and we, 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 there was, it was such a fascinating tale. We only got to cover the first half. I, I, I need to schedule with Amir to eventually, uh, record the second half. So, so I, I have been sitting on that audio for like a long time. So I'm going <laughs> to, to try to get the, to the two halves at the same sort of time, yeah. My year resolution is uh, after we release this video, I'm going to sound edit that, uh, put it out as soon as possible, um, arrange another recording session with Amir, and finish our, like, the, 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 the final, um, the epic... Uh, epic battle. And, <laughs> yeah, epic battle of, of Karhai, and we'll, we'll put it out. So, it's the battle that spelled Roman Iranian foreign policy for what seven centuries. It's a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 Um, yeah. So, so I, I, I thank you again, uh, Nadine, to come to our show. I mean, like every time you just bring brainstorm like tons of knowledge. <laughs> well, thank you for having and, me. Thank it's you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yes, uh, it's it's a pleasure is all ours, and uh, we'll, we'll have to do this again. Definitely, yeah. Bot ku bisadi agba halakam kardas, ishqi dukhtari yagnab khumaram kardas. سیلوب چه شوم سیلوب چه شوم مرغب و انصاب بگیرم ای بای بچه شوم دختر یغنا بگیرم ای بای بچه شوم دختری یغنا بگیرم آیا